Father God, you are very good to us because you have made yourself known to us in Jesus and through your word, the Bible, that we have in our hands, in a language we understand. Please help us now, by your Holy Spirit, to understand these words, what they mean for us, what they mean as they point us to Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, of all the liars in the world, sometimes the worst are our own fears. So said uh, Rudyard Kipling. I wonder what you make of that. I'm often struck that the most repeated command in the Bible isn't what you might think. It's not love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength or, or love your neighbour as yourself. It is, do you know what it is? It's do not fear. Do not be afraid. That is the most repeated command in the Bible. What does that tell us about the world that we live in? What does it tell us about uh, the, the, the Christian life? It's not hard to see how much fear has driven so much of the response to the pandemic, is it? Of course, fear can be an entirely uh, healthy response to real, genuine threats. You know, if you, if you cross the road, you should be afraid of traffic. That's a good thing. Avoid it. Act accordingly. So you can't just say all fear is wrong. But surely... Kipling was, was right. So often our fears are groundless, actually, and yet they drive so much of our activity and behaviour. And then, you know, think about we live in a, a social media-driven world that thrives on the fear of what other people think of us, doesn't it? Uh, my Fitbit watch um, introduced a new feature this week. I don't know if anyone else has got Fitbit and noticed this. You've now got a stress meter on your wrist and in your app on your phone. And it, what it does is it gives you a, a lovely little score every day to tell you how stressed it thinks you are. Now, temperamentally, I'm not a very stressed person. Um, but even, uh, you know, even so, I'm not sure that I, particularly if I am feeling a little bit anxious, I'm not sure that I want my Fitbit to kind of chime in and go, yep, you are feeling anxious today. Well done, lower score. Um, I think that's just going to give me another thing to be stressed about. But God, in his wisdom, makes the command that we hear the most in the Bible, do not fear. So it tells us something about the world. It tells us something about what it means to be a Christian. It tells us something about the life that we are called to. And even if we know as Christians that we can cast all our anxieties on God, and we know that, we hear that, we read the New Testament, we know that that's what we're supposed to do, and we, we do not need to be afraid, actually we can still struggle with this, can't we? Maybe in the early days of coming to faith, all seems well, but as life goes on, it, things get complicated. Family, parents, job, school, we, 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 will, we will always find something to, to worry us, something to stress about, something to fear. Well, fear is the thread that runs through this chapter. Chapter 43 in Genesis, as we've been working our way through this extraordinary story of Joseph and his brothers over this, uh, this term. And this, in chapter 43, we are in part two of a three-part thriller. Whoops. Um, 
that makes up the three visits to Egypt paid by uh, Joseph's brothers. And uh, part two of this thriller actually covers chapters 44 and 45 as well, and we'll come back to that next time. But the, the overall theme in these chapters is about God bringing reconciliation and forgiveness and rescue in the family of Jacob, which in the bigger picture of Genesis is all about God continuing to fulfill his promises to Abraham back in chapter 12. What is God doing here? What's the point of this? It's not just to give us lovely stories. It's to show us how God is building a people as he promised, giving them an identity, getting them to where they need to be in order in the end to experience his rescue and redemption in Exodus. But along the way, we get to see some of the ways God works in his people as he fulfills his promises. And in particular, that he delights in using very unlikely and uh, uh, people and families in his plans, not least this highly dysfunctional family of Jacob. Now, Joseph has experienced terrible things at the hands of his brothers, as you'll seen if we've been with us over the last few weeks. Last time we saw the beginnings of what it looks like to forgive, as Joseph took some initial steps in chapter 42. But now in this second visit to Egypt, the focus switches now to the internal motivations of these characters, and especially Jacob, first of all, as the, as the dad, and then the brothers. And it's very clear that in different ways, fear is driving them. Fear is driving them and their actions. For Jacob, we'll see his fear of loss, what he might stand to lose, that is driving his actions. For the brothers, it's kind of fear about God and whether they can really trust him. So we're going to see that. The, the chapter kind of divides into two halves. And I've got a question for us that unlocks each half of the chapter. So first of all, as we focus on Jacob, first of all, here's the question for us. What do you think you could not live without? <clears throat> From verses 1 to 14. What do you think you could not live without? Well, what was Jacob's answer to that question? It's very clear as we read through this. Jacob thinks he could not live without Benjamin, his son. Remember, that was Joseph's demand in the previous chapter. Joseph's in disguise. He's recognized his brothers, but they've not recognized him. And they, he sent them back to fetch their youngest brother because he needs to know, have these brothers of mine changed since what they did to me uh, in, back in chapter 37? Or are they still actually mistreating their siblings like they mistreated me. But at the end of uh, chapter 42, uh, the brothers get back to Jacob back in Canaan and sort of say, look, we, we kind of need to take Benjamin back because the bloke said we needed to bring him. And Jacob is having none of it. So look, if you just cast your eyes back to the, to the last verse of chapter 42, verse 38, uh, Jacob says, no, my sons, if Benjamin dies like he thinks, remember, he thinks Joseph has died, and Joseph and Benjamin are the two sons of Rachel, his favorite wife, and he thinks he's lost number one son of favorite wife. He's thinking, if I lose number two son, you are going to bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. I couldn't possibly take it, he's saying. The pain would kill me. Now, can you think what the equivalent would be for you? 
There's bound to be something or someone. In, in, in many ways, actually, we know that it's only human, isn't it, to feel like that? It's, it's very human. See, as far as Jacob is concerned, there's only one possible way of these events going, and it's the, it's the version where he's in control and things happen his way. That's the version that he needs to sort of cling on to at all costs, he feels. And so he's really frustrated and cross with his sons. Verse 6 in chapter 43, remember Israel is another name for Jacob. He says, why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? Why didn't you just keep quiet about the other brother? Then we wouldn't be in this fix and I wouldn't be having to kind of panic about the fact that I might be going to lose my favourite son. Why couldn't you keep your mouth shut? Now, no... The brothers debate with him and, and, and manage to convince him. First, you know, first of all, we, we had no choice, Dad. Uh, uh, that they didn't volunteer Benjamin's existence to this guy, this powerful guy who was asking. He kept asking mysteriously pertinent questions that they just sort of had to answer. And then Judah makes this kind of brash offer, which along the way shows how much he's changed as well since chapter 37 and 38. Remember all the little stuff with Tamar. Uh, that went on, and, and also in chapter 37, where he was the guy who sold Joseph uh, to the Midianites or, or came up with the idea. So he's no longer using other people like Joseph and Tamar to save his own interests. Now, what he's saying is he's prepared to die to serve the interests of others. But by contrast, Jacob here is still really kind of focused on himself, verse 14. So, you know, even if, God forbid, Benjamin were to die on this journey to Egypt, his, his real concern actually is not the fact that Benjamin might die. His real concern, first of all, is, is his own grief and how he will feel about it. That is what he fears, and that is what is driving him. But as we read this, we know where this is heading, don't we? We, we, we can see that even as he fears losing Benjamin... What is actually going on here? What's actually going on is that God is working, through, as he's been working throughout these chapters, God is working not to take Benjamin away from him, is he? He's actually working to give Joseph back to him. Isn't that extraordinary? But in order for that to happen, Jacob has first of all got to be left completely alone in Canaan. And in a similar way to what happened earlier in his life, things have been stripped back so much that all he's got left now are the promises of God to cling on to. And we know it's one thing to say that when we know the ending, as, as we do, but it's another to believe that, that when you are Jacob in Canaan, with one son presumed dead and the other 11 all now off in Egypt... It's hard, isn't it? But this is so often how God works. It's as if he has to pry our fingers off the thing that we value the most, but not in order to bring us misery, but actually in order to bring us more than we could ever dream about or imagine. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. We make idols and then we worship them. And we conclude that we cannot possibly live without them. But it's particularly difficult to, to see this when the idol takes the form of something or someone that actually in themselves is good. 
So on, on Father's Day, we might rightly ask, well, shouldn't a father love his son? I mean, clearly Jacob is loving his children in a slightly unhealthy, dysfunctional way because of the, the way he plays favourites, and that is not a good example of fatherhood to hold up on Father's Day by any means, but there's still something in the fact that you can empathise with a father worrying about his son because he loves him. So what's wrong with that, we might think? Shouldn't, shouldn't a father rightly grieve if, God forbid, he lost a son? Well, okay, that's absolutely true as far as it goes. But you see, Jacob is taking it to the next step. He's effectively saying he cannot conceive of a world and of a God who made that world in which anything happens other than what he thinks makes sense. Now, you can, you can to some extent, explain his obsession with Benjamin and before that with, with Joseph by remembering both God's promise to him of a descendant through whom God's promise and his blessing would continue. So this isn't an ordinary family, is it? This is a family to whom God has said, you know, one of your children will continue the line of blessing that I have uh, has passed to you, Jacob. And, and all of that, you see, you know, if you track back through J Jacob's life, you think, well, you know, his eyes were set on Rachel, and that was also important, and he had to marry Leah along the way, but really he wanted Rachel. And so in his mind, you can understand in one sense why he thinks the line of promise must be going to continue through Rachel, his beloved. And then, well, goodness me, number one son has died, so number two son must be the guy. Can you see? That's why he's kind of got into this way of thinking. But actually, all of that comes together to mean Jacob is adamant that life can only go the way that he thinks makes sense. Because that's all he's saying there. He's kind of putting two and two together and making five, isn't he? He's, he's saying, well, it must be going to be like this, so therefore, when it looks like it's going different from this, everything's going wrong. And actually, God calls that idolatry. And he is clear he will not and he cannot share us with idols and the reason for that is not that he's a spoil sport but actually it's, it's extraordinary actually the reason that God won't share us with idols is that our imaginations are self-centered and small I love this quote from C.S. Lewis which explains this um, he says this he says we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea we are far too easily pleased so do you see the point what do you think you could not live without a particular person our income, our job, our status, our career, our friendships, our families. See, for God's plan to come about in, in our lives, sometimes we first have to be left in Canaan alone to give up what we think we cannot lose in order to gain what we haven't even begun to dream. In the Generosity Project videos, we've been hearing stories of people who've been forced to do that. A few weeks ago, there was Manoy Raitata, a millionaire property developer, who thought he had everything, and then he lost it all in the credit crunch in 2008. 
<clears throat> but in that process, he found faith in God instead, in Jesus. It's often said that living as a Christian is about giving up what we cannot, in the end, keep to gain what we cannot ever lose. And of course, this is nothing less than the pattern that Jesus himself lived and set in his life and death. As in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, in effect, you know, there must be some other way. If it's possible, take this cup away from me. But not my will, but yours be done. And he gave up his life and rose three days later. And because of that, we know whatever it is that we might have given up or might have to give up now or, or might need to give up in the future, resurrection is coming. So what do we think we could not live without? But that then takes us to the second half of chapter 43 where fear has a different focus. So here's the question for us in the second half. Do you believe God's mercy is free even when you don't deserve it? Do you believe God's mercy is free even when you don't deserve it? Once again, fear is driving these brothers as they head back to Egypt. So encouraged by their father, verse 11, <clears throat> they conclude that they cannot possibly go empty-handed. So they, they sort of gather together, balm, honey, spices, myrrh, pistachio nuts, almonds. That sounds a bit random, doesn't it? But don't miss the link here with uh, those Midianite traders who bought Joseph back in chapter 37. They were traders, it turns out, in spices, balm, and myrrh. So these brothers have changed since then, haven't they? And we've been looking for evidence to change all the time. Instead of receiving silver for selling their brother, which is what they did in chapter 37, now they're taking double back with them of what was mysteriously put in their sacks. And they hurry to Egypt to present themselves. In order, verse 14, to beg for mercy. Now, it's important to see mercy from Joseph is all tied up with receiving mercy from God. Can you see that in verse 14? Maybe, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And as far as the brothers are concerned, this is going to need payment. This is going to need earning. This is going to take some pleading on their behalf. So they know they don't deserve it. They know in so many ways that they don't deserve this at all. And so they're gathering together all this stuff. You know, oh, what are we going to say? What are we going to do? Is it going to be okay? How are we going to negotiate this? But you see, verse 16, Joseph is already making the first move to prepare a feast for them as they return. And they get to his steward in verse 20 and they present their prepared speech. You know, oh, sorry about the silver and all that stuff, but, you know, this is, we, 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 but please, please don't uh, think badly of us. They're pleading for special treatment. And actually, the, the dynamics here of this story are a little bit like the story of the prodigal son that, that Jesus tells. You know, the son who rejects his father and he squanders his inheritance and then he comes back with his tail between his legs and he's got this prepared speech, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please, you know, please let me make me like one of your hired men. But while he's sort of going over this in his head and he's getting ready for it, the father sees him coming and he 
legs it, which men in that society never did. He runs down the road to, to fling his arms around his son, who he sees coming back, and, and throws a feast for him. A feast he doesn't deserve, but it's because of the love that the father has for his son. So it's a similar sort of thing going on here, isn't it? Although it's not the father doing it, but they finally come before Joseph. They present their sort of token gifts. You know, here are the, here are the nuts, here are the almonds. And, and there is a conversation about this one remaining absent family member. Uh, is Jacob still okay? Yes, he's still okay. There's more uh, bowing down. Remember, that fulfills the dreams of verse 37. There they are again. They're bowing down. And then Joseph, verse 29, sees Benjamin. And he weeps. And can you see what's happening here in, 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 with this? You see, with tears, Joseph is absorbing the cost of their betrayal. He's choosing again, as we began to see last time, he's choosing to forgive. He's throwing this extraordinary feast which completely dwarfs their carefully curated selection of gifts to try and please him. His mercy on his brothers is tied up with God's mercy on them. God is showing their mercy through Joseph. But their actions, as they come to Joseph, they, they reveal their fears, as we've seen, don't they? They still think mercy has to be deserved, has to be paid for, has to be earned, even though they can never deserve forgiveness after what they did to Joseph, can they? They can never deserve it. They can make up for it. But, no, the price has been paid. Joseph is saying, in effect, forgiveness is free. Come to the feast and enjoy being together See, some of our misplaced fear that we've been thinking about is actually driven by a wrong view of God. We fear because we, 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 we think we cannot trust him with this particular circumstance that we're in. We can't trust him with this person, this situation, this decision that we need to make. We think really only we know best. And even though we kind of know what God would say we need to be doing in a particular situation, we kind of think, yeah, but really, I can't really trust him. I need to, to go my way. Because we think, what, do we, what does that show that we think God is like? Well, it kind of says we think he's more of a, <clears throat> maybe a kind of dictator, tyrant. Maybe more like a pharaoh, actually. A distant despot who, you know, we can only hope to placate through our pathetic acts of pleading and serving, and here are some nuts and all that. And maybe then he'll give us what we want. But you see, the reality is completely different, isn't it? We're over here, you know, scraping together our pistachios and our almonds, and he's over there preparing a feast, a banquet for his children, for when they return to him at the cost of his own son, who was brought to tears like Joseph, as he went to the cross, and who now invites us to feast with him. What is it about this God that we can't trust? What is stopping us? 
I guess for some of us it is the rawness of life's experiences, isn't it? We, we simply cannot quite, we can't get our heads around that a good God would allow what we've experienced to happen, maybe, in our lives. And so we just sort of prefer to keep our distance. Some writers even talk of the idea of how we might need to forgive God in these circumstances. Well, the Bible never speaks like that. And it's not helpful to think of God like that, as if, as if God is the one who has done evil or done wrong. We don't always have the answers to those questions, do we? About why a good God would allow these things to happen. But we do have Jesus, who entered into our suffering, who endured the greatest possible suffering, and who did it for us, so that the cost of forgiveness has been paid. And so God says to us today and every day, he says, come to the feast. Maybe this Father's Day we need to reorient our vision of fatherhood away from human fathers, good or bad, to this perfect father, the one who is already preparing a feast even before his people have got the pistachios and the almonds out on the table. This God is the father who runs to greet his son when he finally comes home. William Cowper wrote the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. You probably don't know the hymn, but you've probably heard that phrase. But one of the verses in that hymn goes like this. It says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence... He hides a smiling face. Behind a frowning providence. That means, you know, in the experiences that we go through in life feels like a frown coming our way from God. But no, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. He is working in all our circumstances to pry our fingers away from the idols that stop us from enjoying him as he created us to do, to help us let go of what we cannot possibly keep, to gain what we cannot possibly lose, to make us more like Jesus so that we're ready to spend eternity with him. And that is what we see here in the story of Joseph. God's work is so often hidden not obvious, but there. And so we fear. We fear and we think maybe all is lost. Maybe we can't trust. Maybe our only hope is clinging on to these ridiculous idols. But he says, let them go and come back to him and take your seat at the banquet that he offers freely at the cost of his son. Amen.